so it's it's really just being passionate about the space you're in, building out a network of folks that can help you. But the biggest thing is showing up and kind of putting your head down and just continuing to make progress every day. Because you know, you zoom out after a few months and you'll realize how much progress you've made, even though in the moment it can be very difficult to see that. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Samir Qureshi, the co-founder and chief executive officer of NAC, the fastest growing peer tutoring platform for colleges and universities. Samir has been featured on Inc.com as a top 30 entrepreneur to watch, was recently inducted into the 2020 class of Forbes 30 Under 30, was named Emerging Tech Leader of the Year by Tampa Bay Tech, and was featured in Tampa Bay Magazine's Top 10 Under 40 for 2021. NAC is now used on 25 college campuses and is continuing to expand across the country. I'm excited to have Samir on the show today, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Samir, thank you for joining me today on InFactor. Likewise. Thank you, Dr. White. I appreciate this. So as we were talking about before we got started recording, I really love to highlight some of the young entrepreneurs here in Tampa Bay. And, you know, yours is a great local story. So really excited to have you have you share that today. But I like to always start, kind of go back to the beginning and hear the stories of our guests and how they got to where they are now. I read that you came to the United States at the age of seven, I think, from Abu Dhabi. I actually went there a few years back with a partnership that we have there with the University of Abu Dhabi. But you came with your mother and your sister. So tell us a little bit about that, about your history and, you know, that whole transition moving to the United States. Yeah, certainly. I was pretty young and I remember, so Abu Dhabi is just outside of Dubai, which very quickly when I came to the US became the next hotspot everyone was talking about. But when I was there, I was quite young, born in Abu Dhabi. And then right as I was born, my family moved to Dubai. And so I lived there until I was about just about seven, I believe. And all I remember were cranes everywhere, right? It was really kind of still being developed. I think at 1.60 or 70% of the world's cranes were in the UAE. So it was a really interesting time to just kind of see all of that. And then come to the United States and a few, and I would tell everyone when I came here where I was from and no one really knew what it was. And then just a few years later, it really blew up as kind of this place of got a lot of futuristic kind of, you know, technology and architecture and very interesting and progressive place. But it was an interesting transition. You know, there was definitely some culture shock coming from a new country. I did speak English. I mean, I was young, but English was kind of the main language there. So I didn't have too much of a language barrier. But there was a pretty bit different sort of culture, right? And so even the way classrooms are structured, a lot of that sort of stuff. So as I was kind of getting into elementary school, it was definitely an interesting time. And part of that experience is, is ultimately what led me to start NAC. And so very much a proud immigrant, American, American citizen now, gratefully. And so became a citizen just before I was 18. And, you know, it's been amazing to be here, but an exciting opportunity to be able to build a business here as well now being, being a citizen. 
Sure. You know, I'm glad you mentioned all the innovation there because I do remember when I was there, the opportunity to explore some of the communities even that had been built all around innovation. And of course, I was there, I think, 2014. So it was after, of course, you were here. But the leadership there, especially in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, really understanding that they needed to think about something besides oil as a way for the country, you know, for the economics of the country in the future. And so very focused leadership in terms of innovation. Do you think that that had an impact at all, kind of growing up around that on you being interested in being an entrepreneur or did that come from somewhere else? You know, it wasn't because when I was there, it hadn't really had that spark yet. At least I didn't, maybe I was too young to even recognize it, but not really. I think there were some other experiences kind of growing up and struggling through, you know, my academics and then subsequently becoming a tutor and then working at some larger tech companies. And so I think there was some inspiration drawn from that and and also having some small business owners in my family. You know, entrepreneurship was always something they encouraged. And for me, I always looked at it as as truly the American dream, right? Where you come here, you start something of your own, you have customers and you create opportunity for others. So I think it was less about kind of my experience in the Middle East, and it was more actually about the experience I had here in the U.S. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you started a company called Knack. And so, as you mentioned, it pertains to, or, or some, of the, some of the idea, or the, at least the recognition of the opportunity came from your own personal experiences. Could you talk us through that, you know, how you came up with the idea and sort of the whole process of getting the company started? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I mentioned coming to the US and having a bit of that culture shock and what have you. And I did struggle a good amount growing up in, in school, especially in my early childhood years. And, you know, my mom recognized that, that that was a challenge for me and immersed me in a lot of academic support, really became my first tutor helping me through math. I remember just kind of sitting at the dining table and, you know, crying my way through algebra as a kid. And then, you know, over time, eventually kind of getting it and it clicked. And then being able to kind of volunteer at the local library, it was at Safety Harbor Library, you know, helping some middle schoolers in their math and such. And so there was something about that experience I had and the idea of being able to help others that really stuck with me. And it was, you know, so many people say that to teach is to learn twice and so many teachers get more out of that process than the students and really believe in that. And that's a big part of our ethos at NAC. And so I ended up going to Eastlake High School in North Pinellas County lasted only about my first year and a half. And then I did the full-time dual enrollment early college program through St. Petersburg College, where I essentially dual enrolled full-time and I left the high school. And so I was in this program. And at the time, Dr. Williams, who's now the president, was actually the provost. And so I worked very closely with her as I ended up becoming a student body president of the college while I was in high school. So, you know, here I was kind of pinned with a broader brush by the system and maybe not doing so well when I was younger being able to overcome some of those challenges and then get very involved at the campus level. And so I was student body president there. I held the BOT seat for as a student representative. And that's when I really started to understand the genetics and DNA of higher ed and what they were struggling with and dealing with in terms of diverse students and, you know, limited funding and things like that. And I always thought it was interesting, but I never thought I would end up in education. So I, I kind of remember hearing that and seeing it and talking to students and I graduated with my AA prior to high school. And when I graduated, I got accepted to University of Florida as a proud Gator and I got admitted as a freshman. So I had four years to really kind of figure out what I wanted to do. I kind of started as a business major, 
and then very quickly changed to, I think, philosophy or something more in the social sciences, and then ultimately became a pre-law student. But along the way, I had a lot of interest in kind of entrepreneurial kind of ventures. And so I helped found a fraternity that had lost its charter and it was coming back. And so I got to be one of the founders of that. And so got got to really experience what it was like to build something from the ground up while I was a student. So it was very experiential in that way. And I ended up getting a job at Apple while I was at UF. And I was actually a dedicated support rep. So they'd mail you computer and everything. They'd train you. They'd you know, pay for a lot of your tuition. It was a really interesting internship sort of program. And I worked full-time on my breaks and part-time during school. And that's when I really cut my teeth on technology. And, you know, when I was in late middle school, I loved iPhones and iPods and stuff like that. But this was an opportunity to work for a company that I really looked up to and getting to know the ins and outs of products and technology, especially mobile. So that's, you know, this was roughly 2012, 2013. So mobile first apps and technology were really the talk of the town. Again, never thought I would end up in tech really, but I thought, oh, that's a cool experience. Let's kind of keep moving here. And as I got closer to graduating, I sort of ran out of classes to take because I had my AA. I came up to just walked into career fair and I got offered a job with a company called Gartner, which is the largest market research firm for technology. And so I landed this full-time job prior to graduation and it was to essentially be a sales rep for technology companies. And I was selling to the C-suite. So I was selling CEOs, CIOs, those sorts of technology leaders within organizations. Graduated, started at Gartner, really loved being able to work in that space and I just loved reading about the trends in technology and talking to different business leaders and did pretty well in my first few months. I ended up reaching one of the highest sales bonuses prior to kind of hitting that first year. And I went home to sort of visit family and see my mom. And my mom said, hey, you're doing so well. You've got a good job. You've made it, right? You came here, got, a, got an education, got a college degree. Now you've got a job. You've got a 401k. You'll probably get promoted if you keep doing well. And she sort of told me, it reminded me a little bit more about that story of myself when I was younger, of how I struggled. You know, my aunts are teachers. My mom was a teacher. And so I feel like, especially as an Asian American, education is just such a core part of our culture that it was something that really mattered to me. And I really reflected on my experience at SPC, working at Apple and the sharing economy was exploding at the time. So Uber, Airbnb, you know, this new worker classification of 1099 marketplaces were really interesting. So I ended up actually quitting my job after thinking about it. And I moved back to the University of Florida. And one of my best friends, who's now my co-founder, empathized with this issue of lack of academic support for at scale, right? Which means a lot of students looking for help in their courses can't get that assistance. Even though universities provide services, there's limitations in how many students they can serve. So we wanted to apply a different model to solving that problem. Again, I quit my job, moved back to UF. We entered into the business plan competition as a non-business student. My co-founder was an engineering student and we applied and we ended up winning the the competition. So it was $25,000 first place. And the university really gave us the infrastructure and the basic support we needed to form the, the business and get our trademark through the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And so that's really how we, we got our start. And then we ended up going to raise some venture money from out West in California and then other local folks like Jeff Finnick, who I know you've had on the podcast. So that's in a nutshell, our story. That's a great story. Did you happen to work with Dr. Mike Morris while you were there? Yep. Dr. Michael Morris. Yeah. I think he came from Syracuse and then UF and he was actually the director of the center. Right. So he was the, you know, he wrote the nuts and bolts of the business plan. It was a book on how to write a business plan. 
you know, we had already launched our product at this point and Dr. Morris said, Hey, I know you all have your product out and you've got students using it and paying for it, but you gotta, if you want to enter this plan and you want to stay in our kind of program, you have to write a business plan or we'll kick you out. So, you know, we, rec- we appreciated and, and honored the academic component of the program. And so we spent, you know, a few weeks reading through his book and putting together our business plan and going to our advisors that the university provided. And then, you know, it started out with 300 teams, then they narrowed it down to 50 and then 15 and then three, and then we won. And so Dr. Morris gave us a pretty strong reference at the end when we went to go raise some venture capital. He said, hey, these guys didn't just write the plan, they built a product. And so I haven't spoken to him in a while. I know he's left UF, but he really left a big legacy. And he was a big reason why we were successful in our early days. Yeah. He and I went to grad school together. So I've known him for many, many years and work with him. Right now we're working on a conference, but he's up at Notre Dame now. So yeah, but I figured that he was a big part of your story if you were working through the center there. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there are a lot of people that would say that education is not important if you want to be an entrepreneur. But I think it's fascinating that a lot of, they say, just go do it. Don't waste your time. But a lot of students, I think, and people like you find that the discipline of a program like that and and the network and the contacts and the guidance that you can get can be really valuable. So it's it's really good to hear your story. And especially since you're, you've got a product that's so closely related to education. So tell us how NAC works. Yeah. So essentially we partner with universities like UF, and I think we're in half the institutions in the state of Florida now, but we'll strike a partnership with the school and they'll say, Hey, we've got 40,000 plus students, right? And we've got a, maybe a one or two tutoring centers that can serve them pretty well, but at other hours of the day or you know, UF and most schools offer hundreds, sometimes thousands of courses. There's just no way that the institution can staff up as many tutors to serve each unique student. But they want everyone to have an equitable experience. If Samir and Rebecca are paying the same tuition price and Samir can get help, but Rebecca can't, how do we ensure that Rebecca can't, right? And so NAC comes in to fill in the gaps and support more students for the university without increasing their overhead costs and kind of doing it in a way that creates a lot of win-wins across the board. So we'll sign a partnership with the university and they'll say, okay, we've got you know, 5,000 students in the business school that could really use more tutoring and we don't really cover tutoring for business students. So they'll bring NAC in, they'll essentially license our technology and also basically allow us to recruit their top students to serve as tutors. So these are students at that same institution. So using that example of UF, we would recruit the business students, we would train them, we would hire them, and they'd basically be 1099 contractors through us, just like an Uber driver or an Airbnb host, let's say. They can work as much or as little as they want. The institution fully subsidizes their their wages. So it's totally a great, flexible job. But by subsidizing their wages, now you know students in the business school that need support can get free access to support from a student who took that course, did well, has been trained, hired, verified by NAC and the institution, which now unlocks so much more access for those students who weren't able to get support. So at UF, to give you an example, you know, prior to NAC, they were doing, I think, between two and 3,000 tutoring sessions uh, in an academic year. In this last academic year, we booked over 20,000 sessions with them. So we really help the institution scale, but they don't have to do the hiring, the management, right? Because faculty and staff have so many other things they need to be doing, but they can bring us in to sort of be a bridge and a partner instead of outsourcing that to an online provider or worse, just leaving students kind of left out on their own. So it's a, it's a peer-to-peer model for tutoring 
exclusively for college students, exclusively driven by partnerships. Have you considered other age groups and other educational levels? Yeah. So, you know, it was sort of in our long-term vision. And then of course, COVID comes about and we had a number of folks reach out and say, hey, we've got, you know, so many students at the neighboring high school, at the neighboring middle school that could really use support. And so we said, hey, we built such a vast network of tutors at, let's say, UF. Now, if Gainesville High School students need support, why not allow those tutors to really be kind of stretched in ways that can provide them more income and can provide the community more support? So we've started to dabble and explore some of those engagements. Florida Polytechnic out in Lakeland, not too far, very STEM-oriented, innovative mm-hmm. campus. They said, hey, you know what? With tests going optional, we want to find interesting ways to identify potential students that we could have enroll into the institution. And so we actually built a large network of tutors on that campus, but we deployed them very intentionally to high schools. And the teachers loved it because now they're getting free support. The students don't pay anything. And when they do go book, when they do go to book that tutor, they'll see that it's a sponsored tutor by Florida Poly, which kind of allows that natural conversation to say, what's it like to go to Florida Poly and what have you. And through that program, they've actually had some, some yield, which means students have actually admitted and put their deposits down. So there is a direct ROI for the institution there. But the ethos of our business, Dr. White, is really how do we align the incentives across the board? The tutor wins, the student wins, the institution wins, and ultimately because those stakeholders win, Mac wins. Sure, sure. It's a it's a beautiful business model. And you know, in a, in a, when you design a, a product like this, sometimes getting that business model right is one of the most challenging things. Did you have some challenges along the way as you as you built this and some starts and stops? Of course, yeah. We never stopped, so we kept going, <laughs> thankfully. And some I was challenges saying, along yeah, the way. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Our initial model was direct to consumer, which means we didn't have this requirement of a partnership with the university. Mm-hmm. In fact, we had UT students that were using the product and were booking, you know, tutors from USF in different parts of town. And what we quickly realized was one, the institution, so UCF actually came to us and said, Hey, we've got so many students, we want to add more tutoring. Is there an opportunity for our student government to subsidize this? So it sort of opened our eyes up to that opportunity, but we knew getting into higher ed and selling into higher ed would take a lot of credibility, a lot of time, a lot of resources, but we knew college students really well, right? We started the company at UF. And so that was a big reason why we started out of the university incubator is we had the access to basically our customers mm-hmm. and we could validate this very quickly. So I was flying outside the library when we first started the company and talking to students and tutors. And again, we, we wanted to, to build a business where students ultimately didn't have to pay. Because so many students would say, I love this. I really could use it, but I can't afford it. And so we just thought about it and we said, well, the universities are reaching out to us. They already have this issue of scale and supporting every student. Let's sort of license our product out and see how it goes. So in 2019, we started to move in that direction. And we had three signed institutions, University of South Florida, Mooma College of Business through Dean Lamayam, as well as Lynn University down in Boca and Florida A&M up in Tallahassee. That was our original first cohort of, of campuses to really pilot this and see if this would work. Uh, and it worked really well. And then 2020 came about and the need for support just skyrocketed naturally. And so the business grew 900%. And now we're growing pretty aggressively, still wanting to support as many of those campuses as we can. Yeah. So a couple of things. The timing seems like it was pretty good for you because you know we're seeing a lot of education facing a lot of new challenges. And that by you know, 
because of that, students are also facing a lot of challenges. So does a lot of your tutoring take place remotely? I mean, does it allow for remote kinds of tutoring? So so you could eventually, if you wanted to, even cross-pollinate campuses and that sort of thing. That's right. Absolutely. And that's kind of that whole idea of can we connect college students with high schoolers that want to enter that institution, right? And continue to grow the incentive structure around enrollment management in the university and directors of admissions love that, right? High schools love it. Students love it. Tutors love it. And so we've certainly kind of explored those directions. I think from our standpoint, what we've really been focused on is how can we, we can create more value for each of those stakeholders, right? So We have actually started to build some really interesting partnerships. For example, you probably know this well, HCC and USF have a very strong articulation agreement as two public institutions, one at the community college, one at the state university level. They already have these natural pipelines that are being built. So we've been able to actually start to connect HCC students with state university students at USF to bolster those pipelines, again, help University of South Florida bring in more transfers, help HCC with their, you know, sort of A to BS or BA measures, and then really be able to have that student who got help at the community college matriculate into the university, and then be able to help back at those state and community college students. So creates this really nice virtuous cycle, which is something that we've been really excited about. So let's talk a little bit about your business model. How does NAC make money? Yeah, it's a software as a service subscription to the university. So they're essentially licensing our technology. There's a fee associated with that, depending on how many students they're trying to support. And then they also add the wages of the tutors on top of that, which goes directly back to their students. So sort of a software fee and then sort of a managed wages model on top of that. And then as sessions happen, it detracts or subtracts, let's say, from that bucket of hours that they purchased. And then they can always buy more uh, as they want to add more support for students. So it's effectively a fully subsidized model. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you started this, you mentioned earlier you had a co-founder. Talk to me about that process. Yeah, so I have a couple co-founders now, and there were folks that I met in school through work as well, kind of over time, but there were really relationships that were fostered for a long time. And and frankly, we had we had never said one day we're going to start a business together necessarily. I think we all kind of had, say, a knack for businesses and, and kind of finding ways of, of delivering value to end users. And so Dennis and David specifically were engineers. David, our chief technology officer, put out apps on the first app store when iOS first released You know, the app store way back in the early to mid 2000s. And Dennis was also an engineering student at UF on industrial and systems. And so I think they had this natural interest in problem solving. And I had this natural interest in being connected to this problem of lack of access to education and wanting to build something that can make an impact. And so, you know, when I went back to them and we started talking about this, there were a lot of personal connections there too. You know, we actually found an old post of Dennis posting on a Facebook group, asking for help in a class because he couldn't find a tutor only to have students kind of ridicule him, friends of his that were kind of making light jokes at him around how he needed help. And then David, our chief technology officer's wife was actually a teacher and his parents, I believe, were in education as well. So, you know, there was a, always kind of this theme around wanting to solve this problem amongst the three of us. And so when we came together and we thought about how broken the market was and, and how much opportunity there was to make an impact, you know, we dove in and, and started the company. 
I'm sure you've learned a lot about what it means to work with partners. And sometimes that can work really well. Sometimes it can be a big problem. Are there any lessons that you've learned just in the in the few years that you've been doing this? I'm sure you're still learning them, but about working with partners as opposed to going it alone? Yeah. So I think being a solo entrepreneur, I have friends that are doing it. I have friends that have tried it. I have friends that have succeeded. It's really difficult, right? And so I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a good cop-out to not having to deal with conflict because you'll deal with conflict in some ways with your customers, with users, what have you, or other employees. So for me, it was never an option. I was never going to go it alone. I think I would have burnt out and just given up much earlier. And in fact, that is the statistics are very real around solo founders, but higher depression, anxiety, suicide, failure rates overall, it's hard, right? And when you involve other folks and, and ideally people you've spent time with and trust, it can be a great thing. Like you said, I think the way to navigate conflict and, and really mitigate those sorts of things is just having a very clear understanding that as much as you might be friends or sometimes relatives or what have you, you know, you have to be able to kind of look at each other from a business sense first and not bring personal items into the business or vice versa, take it personally to yourself. So yeah, we've certainly had challenges. I compare it to a marriage. I know a lot of people do where you got to work at it. And it's something that you should be very certain before you get into in the first place. So there's kind of this notion of founder dating people talk about where, you know, you should spend a lot of time with these individuals prior. And I was lucky enough to have spent a lot of time with them. And even in times where we disagree or what have you, we've been able to work through those without without it becoming kind of larger than it really needs to be or should be. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to go from that idea that maybe the the three of you could do this to actually formalizing it? And did you take any formal steps along the way that, that sort of ensured that you were communicating clearly and that you had an agreed upon vision? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's obviously the legalese where you'll, you'll have a charter and bylaws and what have you, but that's pretty much legalese. No one really, like, you don't look at that every day and try to adhere to that. But, you know, we did, we did create a vision and we did create a short-term vision and a long-term vision. And, you know, that was something that we iterated on as we learned, right? A lot of people, a lot of startup founders have this idea that you have this really noble or lofty vision, vision and you put it out there and the vision should never really change. But as you learn and as you realize that, you know, you may or may not have products, product market fit in certain areas, you kind of have to adapt that and you have to be willing to come back around the table and share those learnings. And so we had a, you know, pretty regular meeting times, no matter how large the team has gotten to be able to come back and really reflect on those things and ensure that the business is moving in the right direction. But it took some time to put that in place. For example, again, none of us had formal business backgrounds. So one of the things we did is we built a pretty large advisory network of folks that had built businesses and had succeeded. And some of them had failed. And there's a lot of learnings there, right? And so one of those people was Alan Clary, actually. And so some, you know, someone I can call up at any point and be able to say, how do you deal with this? And, and funny enough, he's now teaching entrepreneurship. So I think for us, it was filling in the gaps where we didn't have that knowledge through advisors, mentors. And honestly, University of Florida really helped in terms of opening that network up for us and really supporting us through that journey. So, you know, you've got a lot of, I think, really interesting elements in your business model. And, you know, besides the fact that you've got three founders and you've created a very timely product, you've also created, I think, a, a product or a company that has a very 
innovative and timely business model for the people that provide the service, you know, the shared economy. So I'm guessing, as you, I think, earlier pointed out, that we're going to see even more of that. So tell me what you've learned about working with that kind of a business model, because I think even, I think there's a lot that a lot of bigger corporations can learn from companies that, that are doing this kind of shared economy, because they're going to be having a lot of free agents, I think, working for them in the future. Yeah. And that was really it, right? As we believe the crux of what we were doing is creating economic opportunity for one stakeholder and creating increased access to services for another. And that's, in essence, what the sharing economy aims to do, using flexible worker classification as, a me- as really a mechanism to deliver that. You know, I think that was something that just excited me the most, as in addition to this being a market that could really use support. But, you know, I think one of the things we had to learn was how do you serve multiple stakeholders? We had to, even removing the university when we were direct to student. You have students, you have tutors, sometimes you have parents. And what may be best for a student may not be best for a tutor at times, right? And vice versa. And and so a tutor may want to price discriminate. A student may want the lowest price possible at the fastest rate. So you kind of have to solve for these challenges in, in really interesting ways. And then we introduce the university, who's sort of the parent in this instance, who's controlling the funding in many ways and such. And so having to strike a healthy balance between being you know, a trusted vendor and faithful provider to a university while also doing good by students because at times they can be head to head. And that's not just in our business. That's in, in, if you take a look at a university right now, if you were to ask a student, you know, if they want NAC, they may say yes, but an institution may say, we just don't believe this is part of our mission or our ethos. And we've heard that, right? So it can be tricky, but We've just found this to be, we've we've focused on building the business in such a way that it's so hard to say no because it makes so much sense. And so again, aligning the incentives across those stakeholders, looking at what does a tutor care about? What's the direct output of their energy? What does a student care about output? What is an institution output? And try to align that as much as possible. Every institution in the strategic plan talks about persistence, retention, career readiness. We found a way to really hit on those three pieces and, and you know, being a financially efficient system as well, I think can help. So mm-hmm. really understand the goals of each stakeholder and trying to align that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. I can imagine in, in your case, you have a lot of, so you'd have a lot of turnover with these tutors, right? Because they, once they graduate from college, I'm assuming they go on to do other things. So you might have them for a few years. And do you provide any, not content training, but do you provide any training for them in terms of how to, you know, the, I guess the softer side of tutoring, as opposed to the content that they're going to be, you know, working with? Absolutely. You know, that's actually, I I mentioned earlier on how this notion of to teach us to learn twice is really core to what we do. And what we thought was interesting is that most, if not all tutoring companies focus on the student on the receiving end. How are we making sure they are getting closer to learning outcomes, performing better, right? Persisting. We've actually tried to take a deeper approach at looking at the tutor because the supply is the crux of our business. If we don't have motivated, qualified, you know, vetted tutors, then the demand doesn't really matter. And so we focused very, very intimately on, can we develop 
not just a platform that serves them well, but content and support around that. So one of the best examples I can give is, yes, they go through training to talk about the do's and the don'ts, the ethics, covers FERPA, covers Title IX, covers the academic honor code of that institution. But it actually goes into a bit of a deeper module, which we call skills for tutoring. So we're really lucky that one of our investors is ETFs, the creators of the GRE. You probably know the, the mm-hmm. GRE very well. Sure. They took a strategic investment stake in NAC pretty early on around this idea of can we deliver good content to help train these tutors, but then also assess how they're performing. So the idea here is that the better the tutor is, the better the student outcomes are, but also likely the better competencies those tutors have for life. You're probably also familiar with NACE, the National Association of Colleges and Employers. They've Sure and shouting from the mountaintops about how critical thinking, communication, leadership, professionalism are all the skills that employers care about. They're also the skills that are very difficult to assess. Good example is when I, when I got a job at Gartner, it's a, they, I was a pre-law student. I think I remember asking them, why would you want to hire a pre-law student? I didn't study business. I don't really get sales from that standpoint. They said, that's totally fine. We like diverse backgrounds. We're looking primarily at your soft skills and your executive skills. So What's interesting there is I believe that's becoming more and more of a theme, especially amongst business and engineering schools around preparing students for the workforce. So yet another way we're helping to align ourselves to the institution is the tutors go through the skills for tutoring assessment. And it's actually, it's a training kind of point in time, but then there's a living assessment after 15, 30, 60 hours of tutoring, you're getting asked to reflect and actually self-report on your communication, problem-solving, critical thinking skills. Because the idea here is if I've tutored Rebecca and 15 other students on campus, I don't just have good subject matter knowledge. I'm also probably a really good communicator, problem solver, et cetera. And can we utilize the feedback from those students to help those tutors get better and ultimately roll that into a micro-credential on a system like a Credly, let's say, to take that with you on a resume or on a LinkedIn to say, I was at the top 5% of tutors at University of Tampa. They click into it. They see all this rich data that the tutors allowed. You know, and then it really helps take that experience into something that can be career building. Right. And along the way, Dr. White, we've even had companies sponsor those tutoring interactions. So ConnectWise, a local, you know, tech giant, Health Access, another local healthcare tech company, funded some of those tutoring interactions, reduces the burden on the institution, aligns the incentives further. And now they get great talent, those tutors who are kind of closing out of this experience to help, you know, place them in the marketplace. So yeah. We're thinking really across the spectrum as much as we can. Yeah, that's great. I really like that model. And, you know, thinking about training your tutors and preparing them and, and giving them the data they can take with them, because that's that's what it looks like today. We're not just walking out with a one-page resume that lists the dates of when we right. worked somewhere anymore. It's a really different experience. So I, I really like that. And I think you know, what, what I hear from entrepreneurs is that one of their biggest challenges is getting talent. And it sounds like you're thinking ahead on that. So kudos to you and your team for that. You mentioned something about strategic partners. Let's talk a little about money. Entrepreneurs have to secure resources. It sounds like you've managed to bring together some talent and some experience to support what you're doing and other kinds of assets. What has been your fundraising model? You know, to do something like you're talking about usually costs something. And this is what a lot of our students run into when they're when they're envisioning something like this. Could you talk about that journey a little bit? Yeah. I mean it's, you know, there are actually a lot of ways to finance a business. I think a lot of people assume venture capital or, you know, 
private investment is, is the only way. And I think I was in that camp as well. And looking back, you know, we, we did secure a lot in free grant money from winning competitions like UF's business plan competition and others. But there's a connotation that comes when you take venture capital, which is you're really trying to prove that you can be a high growth business, you know, be your quintessential unicorn or billion dollar business. And you have to make sure that that is what you want to do with your business before you take that capital. And when you do decide to take that capital, you're positioning yourself to be able to do that and execute on a plan. There's kind of different iterations of raising capital, you know, starting with grant non-dilutive equity. So I know the SBIR, NSF, America's Seed Fund now is actually doing a lot where they're investing or giving out grant resources directly to businesses, which is incredible. I think you can get like up to one and a half million totally for free. But usually folks end up starting to go down the path of angel investments or venture capital funds or private equity and what have you. And so there's different kind of, you know, gates to getting into each of those groups of folks, right? Angel investors are typically writing smaller checks, typically trusting the entrepreneur more rather than having some sort of deep due diligence that they have to do because they run a fund. And so we've had a very interesting experience. It started with the 25,000 from UF and, and even prior was a friends and family round of 50,000 that we raised, which, you know, to us, that was so much money. And, and I still consider that to be a lot of money. But when I was 22 and, and I was shocked, we were even able to raise that. And we were lucky that we had the ability to sort of meet folks that could write us that check. But everywhere, everything from that to figuring out a valuation to then moving up into actual venture capital money, we raised our first 200000 in true VC money from a fund out West called Precursor Ventures. They're a very prominent fund now, and I think we we're one of their first investments. And you know, I had a call with the managing director, Charles Hudson, and he loved our business and said, I'm, I'm in right over a phone call. And I almost, I just couldn't believe it. I thought I was being scammed. And, uh, <laughs> and I ended up flying out to San Francisco. We signed a term sheet and he said, I'll let you build the business wherever you want. If you want to build it in Tampa. I understand. And so he was an amazing founder-oriented, founder-friendly investor who has kind of coined the term pre-seed. So before even uh, having the product out, he oftentimes was just backing people based off of the market, based off of his EQ of that individual and the product that they were working on. But we had already had our product out at the time, so we had some traction to show for. So that was our first couple hundred thousand. And we ended up meeting him from someone who was sitting in the audience of when we won the business plan competition. So they were, you know, they knew him in San Francisco and they introduced us. And so it's crazy how one thing can lead to another if you kind of chase the right avenues and you really position yourself for growth. So, yeah, absolutely. And I've heard that story multiple times. Sometimes it feels like serendipity, but the reality is it's putting yourself out there, right? And and you need both. I mean, Guy Ross from How I Built This, someone, you know, he asked that that question to every entrepreneur, is it luck? Is it hard work? And someone asked him that question. And I think he said, the harder you work, the, 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 the luckier you are. <laughs> yeah, you're increasing the surface area of luck. And I very much believe that because you're putting yourself out there more. Now, there are obviously people that, that get amazing opportunities dropped on their lap, but I like to believe that those are very far and few in between. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, you know, there a lot of it, I think, I don't remember, I think it was Woody Allen who said something like every opportunity I ever got came from showing up. So you got to get out there. And I like your, you know, basically you said, you know, doing it the right way. And I think, you know, putting yourself in there with with people that can help you, talking to people, getting insights, staying humble, taking advice, all of that, you know, and considering it is is really important. 
So, you know, you've had some tremendous success and I'm so excited again to be able to share the story of a local entrepreneur. But along the way, most successful people have had challenges or failures. Do you have any stories or any thoughts, anything that you've learned from challenge that you'd be willing to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, achieving product market fit, it's sort of this this term that's makes sense, but is very nebulous to measure. Product market fit is this notion that you've developed something, your product, and there's a market for it. And there's a direct fit, which means there's a repeatable customer base. There is effects of the business that are usually generating growth by revenue or by users or what have you. It's kind of the crossing the chasm from an entrepreneur standpoint. If you can get there, and even if you could validate that you're there because there's no secret kind of formula to achieving it, you know, you're kind of in a, in a good place to then be able to really scale up and grow the company. There's a lot of risks around growing prematurely and not truly validating that first, at which point you burn a lot of money, time, resources, energy. And so it took us a lot longer than I think we thought and what we wanted to achieve product market fit. It took us about four years. And along the way, we had to raise capital. Along the way, we almost ran out of money. I was you know, many days away from saying, I should just not do this anymore. And, you know, still have days where you're like, man, it's just such a bad day that you question if it's even worth it. And I think that's part of the journey. And that's part of what makes an entrepreneur someone that's either going to succeed or not. And so we went through a lot of challenges around that pivoting away from a direct to consumer model, where we saw things that were working, but we had to just say this wasn't what we wanted to do and turn it off was difficult. And it still is difficult at times when students and parents want to use our product and we kind of have to say no, but we know that is the best thing for the business, the best aligned with our vision. And the way we can sort of accomplish that is by growing our, our partnership count. And so there's a bit of a time where we, you know, without COVID, I mean, we were at three campuses without it. I don't know that we would have hit, hit 30 as quickly as we did. And so, you know, I would never hope for something like COVID, but I think right, right place, right time. I wouldn't say it's, it's a great time, but our product was positioned to really help that we got really lucky. And, and we had an opportunity to, to move quickly when the, when the world really needed us. And, and 2020 was a lot of learnings. We took, like I mentioned, some K-12 engagements. We really just wanted to test the elasticity, integrity of our product and offer. And as 2020 closed out, we really solidified what that was. And you know, this year, everything just kind of feels like it's clicking in many ways. And so those challenges will come. I know some people were able to find product market fit sooner. And I think that came from probably studying the problem and knowing the industry a lot more, but we're just really passionate. And I think that's continuing to, to kind of keep us going here. Yeah. I call it executing past failure. Those are the winners. You got to keep going, right? So yeah, I think with COVID, one of the things that happened is the things that were going to happen anyway, especially with regard to technology and and learning around technology accelerated. So if you were on the right path, or if you were on that path, I think, you know, 2020 really gave you a chance to accelerate all that. And fortunately, you had the people and and the support to accelerate at that time. What's in the future for NAC? Yeah, a lot more growth. We're gearing up to to add a, a good amount of headcount to our team as we continue to want to grow our market share and, and partnerships count to impact more students. And so a lot of growth around adding new hires, you know, expanding to new institutions around COVID, you know, because we were growing so fast, 
we had an office here in downtown and right near Tampa theater. And it was beautiful office. We opened four months before COVID and had a, just a, like I said, a couple months to really enjoy it. And then COVID happened and we needed to hire folks because demand was increasing for the product. And we actually decided to go fully remote as a company. So we shut the office down a few months ago and we now have employees across multiple states with a pretty strong base in Tampa and Miami. But there's been a lot of changes, but generally I believe it's for the better. And so our focus is really going to be on continuing the path that we're on and expanding as, as quickly and appropriately as we can. Yeah. Sounds sounds like you're on the high growth path. So you may have to just hold on, right? And <laughs> keep going. This is really exciting. I've loved our conversation. I know you have a lot to do, so I, I don't want to keep you any longer, but I usually like to ask everybody on my show, if you had one piece of advice to leave with our listeners, knowing that a lot of them are you know, nascent entrepreneurs, people who are interested in doing what you're doing, or maybe they're already out there and they're trying to figure things out. What what would that advice be? Yeah. You know, if I can do it, I feel like anyone can do it. I didn't have a business background. I struggled a lot in school, so I wasn't your top performing student, but I just constantly pushed myself from a leadership standpoint and, you know, ultimately just still haven't given up. And I think The hardest part about that is there are days where you do want to give up or you don't want to show up. But the one thing that we did was we built, we we were pretty early on open about where we needed our help and heard a lot of advice. We ignored a lot of advice because it just didn't feel right with us in our gut. But there were a lot of people that gave us great advice that did feel right. And we took that advice and have continued to build upon that by working with them as advisors and mentors. And it's really that's the only way we've gotten here because we didn't have a formal background, didn't have formal access to capital or talent or anything. We didn't have some, you know, a unique advantage, right? So it's it's really just being passionate about the space you're in, building out a network of folks that can help you. But the biggest thing is showing up and kind of putting your head down and just continuing to make progress every day because, you know, you zoom out after a few months and you'll realize how much progress you've made, even though in the moment it can be very difficult to see that. Yeah, yeah. That's great advice. So where can our listeners find you, find out more about NAC, you know, learn more? Yeah. So our website's joinnac.com, J-O-I-N and then K-N-A-C-K.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. So folks can connect with me there as well. All right. Thank you, Samir. Really appreciate it. And I wish, wish you and NAC lots of success in the future. I'm excited to watch where you're headed. Thank you, Dr. White. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.